Welcome to the Breaking to Startups podcast, where we feature stories of people from non-traditional backgrounds who broke into tech. On today's episode, we sit down with John Deng, whose story is truly remarkable. Today, John works as a software engineer at Snap Inc., which is a parent company of Snapchat. However, about a year and a half ago, John was a captain in the U.S. Army, and the fact that John is a veteran makes his story even more incredible. If you're a regular listener of the podcast, you probably know that you don't need a computer science degree to become an engineer. Well, John is a perfect example of that. After four years of serving in the Army, John completed Hack Reactor, which is a coding bootcamp. He learned how to code and was able to get a job at one of the hottest tech companies out here. On this episode, John talks about why he chose software engineering, what he did to get into Hack Reactor, and what strategies led him to a job at Snapchat. For those folks who are listening and who get inspired by John's story, we have an announcement. Hack Reactor gave our community access to their five-week instructor-led structured study program, which will not only teach you JavaScript, but it will also prepare you to pass Hack Reactor's admissions assessment. So if you've been toying around with the idea of learning how to code, but you didn't know where to start, this is the perfect place. So just go to breakingthestartups.com and at the top of John's episode, you'll find the link with more information. Speaking of SSP, we really want to give a shout out to our community member, Nuno Neves. You may have heard his story in our Facebook group and seen his posts and videos. But back in September, Nuno joined our bot and found out about the structured study program. Even though he lived in Portugal and there's a significant time difference with the US, Nuno would wake up in the middle of the night, open his laptop, and take SSP six days a week for five weeks. This dedication paid off for Nuno. He was able to get into Hack Reactor, and he actually moved out to San Francisco a few weeks ago and just finished his first week at Hack Reactor. We wish you all the best, Nuno, and we look forward to seeing where you go and where you end up. So without further ado, let's break in. Growing up, we're told that in order to be successful, you need to be a banker, a doctor, or a lawyer. That's what the gatekeepers want you to think. But we're part of something bigger. We're part of a technological revolution. Either you're at the table or on the table. Get in the end. 10X. Yo, yo, yo. This is Ruben Harris. I'm here with the homies Archer Timo Meister. And this is the Breaking Stars podcast. Timo, can you please tell the people what we're doing today? Yeah. So tonight we're recording this episode out of Hack Reactor. And although we always say that our guest doesn't come to us, we come to them. Tonight guests actually flew out here from LA. And we're super happy to share a story with all of our listeners. Our guest was actually one of the first members in our community. So before there were 9,000 people in our Facebook group, he was following our blogs. He's been reaching out to Arthur, Ruben, and myself. And he's not just a listener of the podcast, but he's also a mentor. And he's helped a lot of people break in. Ruben, can you please introduce the guest? Yeah, Timo. We're here with John Dang, who is widely known as a software engineer at Snapchat. But what many people don't know is, in addition to what you just mentioned, Timor, about him being an early member of following the blog before the podcast was even in existence. And, you know, Archer helped him get into Hack Reactor and he was able to navigate. But before that, he was actually a platoon leader in the army with 40 men reporting to him. He was a captain. He was a field artillery officer. He learned a lot of things that we're about to go in about. And I think it's really important because a lot of people focus on on hiring veterans and they just talk about translating things on the resume. But I think we're going to go in on what he actually did while he was there. And then we're going to draw those parallels to what's making him super successful today and how he went from you know shooting targets in the field to taking aim at the tech community and hitting his mark. So John, welcome. Thanks, guys. I appreciate you guys having me here. Yeah, no problem. And so, you know, this morning I was listening to a podcast about, you know, this this type of subject. And I heard a lot about simunition versus like practicing with live artillery. I thought it was really interesting because they talked about the importance of practicing with live fire and how it's important to be able to tune out what's going on around you so you can make rational decisions. And I know in, in the pre-chat, we talked a little bit about that. And did you ever have, did you ever practice with like simulated bullets or 
But tell us a little bit about that. So in the field artillery, we only use real munitions when we train. Oh, you bought that life. Only, yeah. only real bullets. The guns only shoot real bullets. <laughs> yeah. Um, and can you, can you also explain a little bit what you did? Because a, a lot of uh, listeners, they might not necessarily know exactly what an artillery officer or what an pl- artillery platoon actually does. Okay, yeah. So a field artillery unit, I guess, is composed of cannons and the soldiers that operate those cannons. And the purpose of field artillery in combat is to kind of sit outside the enemy's kind of view and be able to support uh, friendly troops on the ground by providing uh, kind of, we call it delivering munitions on the ground, but it's basically shooting rounds and uh, having some kind of effect on the enemy, whether it causes them to duck down so they won't shoot at our friendly guys or it causes them to leave and vacate an area. And so it's basically uh, shooting things at targets that you can't see. And so a lot of that involves risk in training because there's a lot of variables that will affect where the things you're shooting will land, whether it's temperature, humidity, air pressure, or just uh, where you're located on the ground and the elevation that's involved. Got it. Got it. And so it sounds like there's a lot of technical elements to that. I mean, we talked a little bit about shooting targets that you can't see, which makes me think a lot about like, you know, when people are trying to make a lot of these moves a lot. There's a lot of unknowns. And how do you calculate? Missile trajectory. Yeah, a missile trajectory for something that you can't see. Yeah. So there's been a lot of simulations. And so based on historical data, you can kind of predict based on a certain kind of combination of conditions where the round will land. But you can't know everything about the situation at a specific point in time, right? And even if you did, you wouldn't be able to compute it all. And so you kind of have to accept that there is some risk there's some kind of zone that you can't control and you have to create your plan around the fact that there is going to be variability that you don't, you know, within a hundred meters, give or take, like the round could, that's a standard deviation. The round could go anywhere within those hundred meters. So you create your safety plans and your training plans and your operational plans, kind of understanding that there's part of it that you can't control and that you want to succeed even though the round lands anywhere within that, I guess, zone of, not being able to be controlled. Yeah. So it sounds like there's things that you can't control, things that you can't control, very similar to like when you're planning your career trajectory. How did you use, you know, those lessons to, you know, plan out your move to the West Coast? Yeah. So I guess my, like joining the tech industry was, it wasn't like a super like wide arching plan. It was, it started from an interest in tech and then which evolved into kind of interest in engineering and working on websites and stuff. And then kind of always like looking like, what's the next step? What is the next step I need to do to take to be better? And so I guess like from my experience, it hasn't been super helpful to have like a long-term plan, but more like kind of following what I enjoy and then trying to see what like the next action I can take. Yeah. And uh, kind of, can you take us back to the moment when you actually realized that like tech would be a viable option for you? Yeah. So it was actually kind of like a random encounter. I was deployed in Iraq in 2015. Iraq is hot. So I went for a run, came back, and was trying to change out of my sweaty uniform and get into a clean one. Didn't have any laundry left. So I put everything in the laundry bag and hiked it over to the laundry room. Laundry room was closed that day. And I was like, oh. Uh, But luckily, there happened to be another guy who was also kind of sharing my misery of like not being able to wear clean clothes. Uh, And I looked over and he had like a Palantir shirt on. And Palantir was doing some contracting work in Iraq at that point. And so from talking to this guy, Kendon, he's actually kind of introduced me to the idea that like I might have a future like in the tech industry. What was his role at uh, Palantir? So he was something called a Ford deployed engineer, mm-hmm. which is kind of the guys that on a Palantir client, whether it's in DC or I guess Baghdad, Iraq, they go and they support the project. They debug things. They kind of work with the client to kind of get their needs met. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So similar to when you, what you mentioned, how there's a lot of unknowns with shooting um, missiles at targets you can't see. There's actually a lot of ways for someone to get into tech. So you did mention to us a little bit in the pre-interview about your process of analyzing your options after the army in terms of how you're going to break into tech. Can you talk more about which options you were looking at, and then also what kind of due diligence you do in order to come up with your like roadmap. Yeah. And so I guess at the point that I started thinking about tech uh, previously, 
I was about a year out from getting out of the army. And at that point, I was kind of on a different path. I was thinking about going back to grad school or working in like a different industry. And that's kind of like where I was going toward because I guess primarily because I was undecided. Once I started realizing that I was interested in tech, I started thinking about maybe going to like a master's program, either for computer science or uh, business at like Stanford or something. Uh, but I guess I was impatient, right? I wanted to be able to make more of an impact sooner versus having to like kind so you of- you didn't want to wait two years. You're like, hey, I'm ready to start coding, building websites now. Yeah. I think when you're leaving something and starting something new, you have to use that momentum, right? Because two years later, the excitement like of like kind of leaving one part of your life and moving on to the next isn't going to be as present. Mm-hmm. So while you're excited, I think that's the best time to like do something versus waiting on it. Yeah. So, so you came across this notion of boot camps while you were looking at traditional like university programs. Can you talk more about why you chose the boot camp route versus the university route? Yeah. I guess what I was interested in is like kind of like very intense, challenging technical training that would lead to a job versus like kind of more of an enrichment experience, which is like university education is about. Both are important, but I needed a job. And yeah, and in the pre-chat, you talked a little bit about kind of like your um like technical when you're like technical versus tactical, and like kind of like how you thought about you know getting into these different types of things, like. How did that play as, or first of all, what is that? And then how did that play as a factor in this decision? Yeah. So in in the army, like as officers are training focused on kind of two aspects of leadership Uh, on the army, they call them tactical leadership and technical leadership. So tactical is kind of what you traditionally think about in the military. It's kind of motivating people with a common vision. It's explaining the plan and then it's getting in the truck and driving out there with the guys, right? Technical leadership is basically understanding enough about the domain to, I guess, do the parts of leadership that aren't about motivation or managing people, right? It's understanding the systems and where the risks lay and then devising training and then building operations plans based on your kind of knowledge and understanding of what the risks and kind of possible outcomes are. And so, and so it sounds like that second, that the technical is kind of like what you were doing when you were thinking about the overall landscape, like from a traditional versus a boot camp type of model. Is that accurate? Yeah. So I guess coming out of the, the military, I was, because I had been kind of a manager role for so long, at that point, I was very interested in kind of getting my hands dirty and like doing the thing itself versus like, I guess, kind of managing other people yeah. doing thing. And so I wanted my next role to be about my individual contribution as part of a team versus mm-hmm. being in charge of that team. And that's kind of what drew me to engineering originally is at that time, I realized now that it's a much more team-based endeavor. But mm-hmm. at, in the beginning, it kind of felt like there was like an immediate feedback loop between what your input into the system is, what your work in, that you put in versus like what the outcome is, whether your code compiled, whether like yeah. it ran. And it's interesting that you highlighted that like you were looking for something that, that was intense, like challenging. And I think there's a lot of uh, folks in the army who kind of initially enlisted because they want to challenge themselves. They want to push themselves to the edge almost and like figure out where their limitations are. So how did you approach preparing for the boot camps? Like what did you um, kind of, what was your game plan around like picking a boot camp, attending it, and then looking for the job? Yeah. So I guess like the first step is I first had to realize like, is this programming thing for me? And I think I validated that with actually using part of it on the job. Mm -hmm. When I was in Iraq, a lot of the information was stored in this common Excel sheet that uh, many different bases in Iraq used where they would kind of report like intelligence events or like random happenings. Like this thing happened at this time in this place. These are the notes. This is a link to another possibly related event. And, but because the, the people entering in this data were pretty close to the front lines of combat, their main priority wasn't, I guess, data quality and entering. Documenting, right? Yeah. Documenting what happened right there. Their main I guess, concern and responsibility is reacting to it. And so I spent, while working at headquarters, kind of further away from the front line, I was trying to make use of this data to help inform decisions. And so I would spend a lot of hours each night kind of making the data usable by like deleting duplicate rows, kind of fixing cells that weren't correct data. And so um, I actually ended up learning Python as a way to kind of automate this like tedious task that I do all the time. And so 
I think that's what got me hooked is like using kind of like a limited experience to like write like a kind of a hacky program that only worked on a limited set of inputs, but it did solve like a problem I had mm-hmm. at that point. Yeah. And you mentioned that you were starting to plan out how you're going to become technical when it comes to engineering about a year before um, you actually finished your service. We have a lot of people who listen to our podcast who might be in the military right now or in the Navy. What resources does the Navy or the Army provide to those folks who are about to finish service maybe in the next six months to a year? I think the the one that everybody knows about is the GI Bill, Mm -hmm. where they provide a scholarship to either attend undergrad or grad school. I think one program that not a lot of people have heard about that's steadily becoming bigger and bigger is called DOD Skillbridge. Mm -hmm. Can you repeat that for the people that missed that? So one program that not a lot of people know about that is becoming bigger and I think is very valuable is called DOD Skillbridge. Yep. It's the opportunity to spend the last six months of your active duty service working at a fellowship at a company. So it could be a tech company if you're interested in tech. Mm-hmm. Wow. Write that down, people. And are these um, jobs remote or what's the structure of those um, of these like fellowships? So it's uh, basically, it's like you're an intern at the company. You would work on site. You would not wear your uniform, you'd wear whatever people... So you would actually, let's say if this job is in San Francisco, you would be able to spend your last six months in San Francisco on site working at a company, right? Yeah. So you would just be like a regular employee of the company as long as it meets certain requirements and you you get a letter and you have to pass some administrative requirements, but Mm -hmm. pretty much that. But you you pack your clothes though. And when you leave, you get back in, in the field, in the battlefield. Is that accurate? So it's in your last six months. So oh. after that, you leave and you do whatever whatever yeah. clothes you wear in normal life. It, John, it. So it's something that you mentioned. So you did mention the GI Bill, which covers the traditional universities and colleges and those programs. At this point, I think there's a lot of boot camps that are trying to get, like they're trying to become more organized and they're complying with a lot of state and um, federal like regulation. But at this point, places like Hack Reactor, they're not covered by GI Bill. So when you were making your decision to do a coding bootcamp, knowing that you would probably pay out of your own pocket for it, what was your rationale behind it? So for me, I had a little money saved up, which helped. Mm-hmm. But for me, the more I was more concerned about the time investment, right? Because a bootcamp could be half the cost. It could be $1,000 or $500 if it wasn't if it didn't lead me to where I wanted to go, it wasn't worth the three months investment, mm-hmm. regardless of the cost. Mm-hmm. And so I guess my concern was, would it be a useful step toward where I wanted to go? Mm-hmm. And if so, then the cost is worth it. If yeah. not, yeah. then whatever cost it was. And there are a few boot camps now that accept GI Bill. I don't know what their exact names are, but we can include in the show notes. But hey, if you're considering boot camps, I think there's a few options now that could work. You also, I think, were either volunteered or were involved with Operation Code. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that program? Yeah. So Operation Code is also a really good program for military veterans, active duty, and families to get involved with. They're a nonprofit that's mission is to basically help these military communities transition into careers in tech. Mm -hmm. And so when you're first getting starting out, they have a Slack channel. They have a lot of resources for somebody who's first starting to learn to code mm-hmm. and then a place to go turn to for help when you're kind of confused about, you know, what you're working on or like where to go next based on your path. Yeah, totally. And I remember when you reached out to us after reading the blog post, we had a quick chat. Like I told you about Hack Reactor, my experience. I put you in touch with one of the other guys who was also planning to attend Hack Reactor. And then I remember like a few months went by and I didn't hear anything. And then all of a sudden you're like, hey, I'm actually having an interview in a week. So you actually followed through and you applied yourself. And in that time, you did the due diligence to prepare. Can you tell us a little bit more about like once you decide on Hack Reactor, what it was like preparing for Hack Reactor and what advice do you have for anyone else who wants to do the same? Yeah, I think you uh, did a little more to help me than just connect me with, uh, with Bill, who was yeah. my study partner preparing for Hack Reactor. Mm-hmm. Did you feel like that helped you prepare, having a study partner? Yeah, definitely. So Bill and I would actually... Shout out Bill. Yeah. Yeah. Bill's what actually, what's Bill's last Zito. name? Zito. He's actually working at a cool uh, self driving car yeah, technology doing self-driving company. Self driving car stuff. Wow. Yeah. We went through Hacker at the same time, but we would meet twice a week and work on practice interview questions, mm-hmm. but in front of each other, like we were each other's interviewers. It was like live fire. 
Yeah, like coding practice. So it wasn't the first when we went into the actual interviews. It wasn't like the first. Yeah, it was live fire. Like, yeah, it wasn't the first time we had seen the show. And it wasn't like a individual solo mission like you thought. It was like a team collaborative, like Batman Robin type of thing, or more like Contra. <laughs> well, I'm not sure who is Batman. <laughs> <laughs> but, but cool. That's that's yeah. awesome. Yeah, that's no, awesome. having like another person also on the same mission as you and holding each other accountable actually like really helped motivate me in the times when like it was like struggle. Nice. 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 And actually for people listening now, Hack Reactor has a program called SSP where you get to connect and pair program with other people who are currently applying, planning on applying to Hack Reactor. And you also have a support desk of Hack Reactor graduates who can answer questions, help you debug things. I kind of wish that was in existence when I was planning to attend. But this program is out there. You guys can find out more about it by checking out the link in our show notes. And I think the coolest thing about this prep program is that the final exam replaces the technical assessment to get into Hack Reactor. So if you actually do well in the course and by speaking with some graduates, apparently like after doing the coursework, you're more than prepared to pass the final exam. That actually gets you into Hack Reactor right away. So, so make sure you check that out. When... Archer Timo, when you all were going through the program, I remember watching you guys. Did you guys do the same thing that John Dang was doing where you guys were like supporting each other or was it more like a battle against each other? Well, with Arthur and I, so Arthur went to Hack Reactor and he applied to Hack Reactor. I was applying to App Academy. So App Academy teaches you Ruby and Rails and to pass the admissions test, you're taking the challenge in Ruby. So we did help each other out in a sense where like we would just quiz each other and we would, uh, like John was saying, it's one thing when you're just writing code in your terminal versus explaining the code to the other person. So we did some of that. But I think along the way, we also connected with other folks who were working on JavaScript or Ruby that helped us pass the admissions. And like Arthur was saying, back when we were applying there wasn't any prep programs. Nowadays, there's a lot of there's a lot more resources online that people can tap into in order to ensure that they ace the interview yeah. process. Yeah, and I think kind of like Timur said that we were practicing different languages. But to your point of keeping each other accountable, even though like we coded in Java, like I coded in JavaScript, he did Ruby. Seeing him, let's say, it's say back over the weekend and code made me kind of consider let's say if there's a birthday party or someone else like was having an event and I saw that Timor was planning to stay back and code and that kind of made me realize that hey I should be coding too and I think that's kind of finding someone who will keep you accountable is super important especially in the early days when you're starting out you're not sure if one day you might be super stoked the other day you feel down maybe you're stuck debugging a problem so having someone else next to you who's also struggling kind of makes it a little bit easier. Yeah, and, and have a, a rhythm. You guys got to have a cadence and the parties will always be there. So that's what you were doing, right, John? Yeah. Yeah, okay, cool. Yeah. So, so once you got in, tell us about that. Yeah, and especially you did the remote program, right? Yeah. And I think so, you're the first guest on our podcast who did the remote. So please uh, go in and explain what the difference is and like what, what works, the structure yep. Yeah. So I'm a good remote alumni, and I'm going to say there's no difference between <laughs> the remote and the on-site. Yeah. But uh, how is the program structured for like, give us people the listening? Give yes. us the real. Like, yeah, there's self-discipline that you probably learned in the Army. Or maybe, like, maybe you could talk about how you self-discipline yourself because that's yeah. important. So I guess the main difference is you, you keep the same schedule, right? You still have daily stand-up, and then you code for, like, 10 or 11 hours a day, whatever that day requires. But you're not around other people unless you want to be, right? And so like, I guess on site, you're always in the building, you see people, you go to lunch with people. Like if you're having a down day, somebody's going to see you on the couch and be like, hey man, what are you doing? Yeah. But on remote, you can just, you know, click like hang up on your Google Hangouts <laughs> and you're just at home on your computer and you can leave and walk away. And sometimes that's super helpful. If you need to take a break and think something through, but it also adds another element of discipline in that like you have, in order to, get that social support of like somebody keeping you accountable, you have to actively yeah. ask for it. It's and not Can you talk a little happen. bit about the pair programming aspect of doing the remote program and how that worked? Yeah. So the pair programming for the first half of the course was uh, kind of using this code sharing app. Can't remember the name of it now, but basically you install plugin Sublime and then both of you will see the same code and then you're on a Google Hangouts. And so you're talking in real time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Nice. And so just so 
I have a better understanding. So it's 10, 11 hours a day, six days a week, right? Yes. And with the remote program, can you choose which day you don't want to do it? No, it's the same schedule. So sun, you have Sundays off and then the other six weeks you're in regular schedule. Got it. And yeah. you, there's daily, I mean, there's still lectures, right? And there's still structured time throughout the day. I think the flexibility you get is if usually there's at least like four or five hours where you code. And I guess if you have a pair body and you guys, maybe you need to step out for an hour, then I guess it's a little bit more flexible in that respect. But there's, it's still, every day is very structured and there's lectures and check-ins and all that stuff. So, yeah. Do you feel like you can, uh, if, if you ever got stuck, was there a TA just waiting to answer your question or like what was the process to get unstuck if you run into a problem? Yeah. So they actually, they actually did a pretty good job of replicating like what it's like on onsite. So on the whiteboard, I guess the virtual whiteboard, which is a shared Google doc, you would list your hangout ID with the URL and then the TA, the help desk person would come and drop in on our hangout and just check in on you being like, oh, what are you working on? Like, how's it going? Do you have any questions? And so it kind of has that like spontaneous feel of like mm -hmm. bumping into each other in a virtual mm -hmm. space. Totally. And tell us a little bit about where you were based at that moment because you were still in the military and you were, where were you based at that moment? Yeah. So the reason I did remote was because I was still active duty military. So I was wow. on my base. Uh, Fort Drum, New York, oh, New York, in Syracuse, yeah, north of Syracuse. So you were doing kind of your military stuff and coding and you were living in a base. So you timed it perfectly, right? Cause so you, you did like 18-hour days or 19-hour days? Yeah. Eight hours was military and the rest of... So luckily I, I was able to kind of engineer the situation in agreement where my military tasks were like very minimal. And I was able to kind of like call on a store of like kind of like goodwill capital that I built working hard for the previous three and a half years in order to get three months where I could focus on my next career while my military duties were very minimal. Got it. So you, you, you essentially, you were in charge of people at that point, right? I wasn't. So at oh, that point, weren't? I kind of had to step back and say, I'm going to focus on doing this next thing. Got it. Got it. And so can you walk us through like kind of like the day in the life just so we get a sense of what that looked like? So it's pretty normal hack director day because I was on the East coast. It was kind of a shifted schedule because the classes were on Pacific time. So I would wake up kind of early and then work on the sprint or the, or some of my personal projects from the day before. And then class would start at 9am Pacific time, which is 12 on the East coast. And then you do stand up. There's probably some lectures and then there's some coding and then working with uh, like a pair or with your group in the second half and that goes till 8 p.m california time or 11 p.m on the east coast and then you might stay a couple hours just like working on stuff of your own and then you just do that on rotation feels that's like one long dope. day that's very dope when it comes to the cost of the program or like the payment plan of the program is it exactly the same as the on-site or it's a little bit different at the time i did it, it was the same but it, it might be cheaper now I'm not sure. Yeah. Interesting. And I remember when I was going through Hack Reactor, there was a deferment plan as well for the remote program. I don't know if it's still in existence, but that's something definitely to look into. Potentially. It, for the people that don't know, what's the deferment program? So this was, I think, around two or three years ago. So I don't know if this is still around, but back in the day, you could, I think you pay a deposit of like 5000 and you defer the rest of the payment until you graduate. And I'm not sure if it was until you graduate and find a job or just graduate, but could basically kind of deferred for a few months. Kind of like the old App Academy model. Sort of. Yeah. Similar, yeah. Got it. Yeah. Cool. So tell us about kind of, so now that you've been doing this remote program, how was uh, preparing for the job search? Because kind of being based, remember being based in San Francisco, you come across people that work at startups, you prepare to interview and all that stuff. But when you're remote, like, did you have to move to a city that you plan to recruit in or how did that work out? Yeah. So I originally tried recruiting remote by mm -hmm. kind of linking with people on social media, emailing people, mm -hmm. looking on job boards. It's very hard to do. And so at least for me, I wasn't very successful doing it. Mm -hmm. And so I finally realized like, I'm going to move to LA in order to find a job into LA. In LA, I'm going to have to move there and mm -hmm. like meet people in person. And once I did that and I was able to be in LA, be in the same time zone and meet people in person, that, that's when kind of the opportunity started yeah. appearing. And yeah. I remember you did something different when you were graduating. You actually 
wrote a few pretty thorough blog posts. I think one of them even got posted on Free Code Camp, and it would went viral. And I remember seeing on like one of the most popular posts on Medium. But tell us a bit about kind of your thinking behind sharing some of your experiences with the public out there. Yeah. So when I was going through Hack Director, the kind of scariest thing. The scariest thing you could always think about is finding a job, right? Because that's the one thing you don't have full control over. The program doesn't have full control over it. There's no guarantees, right? And so you don't know like what you have to face. You don't know what level people consider, like what level you need to be to be a professional software engineer, right? And so from going through that process and it being very like challenging for me, I kind of wanted to help write something that would maybe demystify it a little bit and maybe make people like less scared to go through the same process. Did you bring up the fact that you're um, a veteran in your uh, interview process? And did that help you in any way? Oh, it was on my resume. It was, it was something to chat about. But So like on the podcast, we always talk about things like a lot of people have perceived disadvantages. And we talk about how to turn them into advantages. Being a veteran by no means is a disadvantage, but we emphasize a lot about how to tell your story where you can translate the work you were doing before to how it applies to the position that you're applying for. So when you were applying to companies, like what was your story like? Yeah. So I guess realistically, the main weakness in my resume was that I had no previous technical or engineering experience mm-hmm. and I didn't have any kind of STEM degree. Right. And so there wasn't as much signal like as an employer would have liked that this person can meet the technical requirements of this job. And so what I had was like kind of, I guess, a strong record of like taking tasks that were given to me or I had chosen for myself and executing on them. And so kind of my story was that, yes, like my experience might be a little bit lacking at this point in this very narrow area of like software engineering, but I do have experience in being successful at things. And obviously I was self-driven enough to do this three-week boot camp without any guarantees of a job by myself at home remotely. And so you know that I'm driven and you know that I can execute. And if I show you that I can meet your technical bar through some kind of practical assessment, then... Did you tweak your resume at all based off of like any of the feedback that you got? Because it sounds like calculating unseen targets in the battlefield has some level of mathematics to it. And like, were you able to spin those bullets into things that looked like something that was relevant in engineering? Because you also were coding Python things in there as well that you taught yourself through Code Academy while also doing Hack Reactor Remote while you were in there and you had 40 men reporting to you yeah. in addition to everything else. Yeah. So I guess the things that, like if I was talking with other army guys that I would like say I was like remembered for my time in the army would be very different than the things like. I highlighted in my resume to talk to employers, right? Because like the things that were personally relevant to me in the army was like ranger school, going to Iraq, like hanging out with my buddies, like after like a long night of patrolling. Whereas kind of those stories I'm very proud of, but I think when I talked to employers, I had to more talk about like the times when I saw a broken process and improved it, or I used some technical skill that I learned on my own to solve a problem. And so... Would you say that's a personal insecurity or like you feel like just employers don't like, because it sounds like like what you learn in ranger school would be relevant at an employer, like it'll buy an, like it will be seen as valuable by an employer, but it sounds like from what you're saying that you felt like it wasn't relevant. I'm just asking, I'm just curious. Yeah. I think in my personal experience as a veteran going through, I think most people, when they talk to you, they'll by default consider you like a trustworthy responsible person right but like the barrier you have to get over is like they don't know if you know what you're doing right in the engineering world and so, so you have to demonstrate technical competency in software engineering right yeah and that's wow. like because most people in their time in the military they were generalists right yeah. they did a lot of different things in different environments and it's hard to say that this makes me a qualified yeah. this x so there's thing. there's actually like companies like shift.org who help veterans map their skills in the military to skills in the work, like in the industries they want to get into once they uh, finish the service. Did you feel like you had to kind of translate your resume in some ways, or did you just focus more on picking up the software engineering skills and proving it to your interviewers and not really lean on your army experience? 
for me, as an, I think for engineers, the easiest way to prove competence is by improving your skills. Mm-hmm. But that's not true for like product people mm-hmm. or marketing people. Mm-hmm. For them, I think there is a lot more to gain by kind of highlighting your story. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And actually on, the, on that topic, I remember speaking with you right when you were, I think you just graduated and you were like taking a few days to kind of regroup and start applying for jobs. And I think this actually might be interesting to, uh, this question might be interesting to a lot of bootcamp grads who are currently either about to finish or just finished. And I remember speaking with you and you were like a little bit hesitant to enter the job search and you weren't sure like kind of where you're going to fall out in terms of like how easy or hard it's going to be. And you had some doubts. And then uh, I remember speaking with you a few weeks later and then you were like, oh yeah, I just like had I spoke with this company and that company and I had an offer from this other company. So it was very interesting to see how like in just a few weeks, your mindset completely shifted. Can you take us back to that moment and kind of explain and kind of share some of those experiences of going from just graduating to trying to figure out how that job search works? Yeah. The biggest fear I had was of the unknown. I didn't know how good anybody's expecting me to be. Mm -hmm. Right. And so it's hard to know you're going to be good enough if you don't know where the bar is. And so that's the difference a few weeks makes is after you go through the interviews and go through the process and you see like exactly what they're looking for, even if it's like higher than where you are at, but it's something to work for. And mm-hmm. so as long as you kind of know where that bar is, then it, it makes things a lot less scary and a lot more like, oh, I just have to work towards this. Interesting. And- so did you ask for feedback at the end of every interview that you did and then ask like what you didn't know, things like that? Yeah. And I think coming out of, from a boot camp. Like if it doesn't go well, the first thing they're going to say is, oh, like we liked you, but you're not experienced enough. And you could just walk away with that, but that doesn't really help you because you know, you already know that you have no experience. You have to like kind of push a little deeper and say, what like actions did I do that showed I didn't have experience? Where could I study that? Like if I wanted to apply again in six months, like what would I need to be stronger at? On the podcast, we like to get, we like data a lot. So can you give us an idea, a rough idea? How many applications did you send out? How many interviews did you get? And how many weeks or months did it take you to get your first offer? Yeah. So I started applying around January 2nd of this year. LA is a little bit different. There's not as many companies to apply for. So I applied to about 50 companies. I got like positive feedback, meaning like a follow on interview or some kind of technical challenge from like 10 of them. I got on sites with four and then offers from three. So it was like a very steep slope. So you had a pretty high hit rate in terms of from onside to offers. Yeah. So tell us a little bit kind of more about kind of when you were choosing companies, what qualities were you looking for? I was looking for a chance to kind of deal with a big company with big problems, but also like a place where I would feel comfortable making mistakes and not being fired from them for making these mistakes. Because I, at this point, my primary kind of thing to optimize for was being able to learn really fast and as like both as an engineer working in a team and to kind of like see what's possible in the tech space. Yeah. 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 John. So, um, I know you're also very active in our Facebook community and you have a lot of people reaching out to you and you give a lot of people advice on how to get into a bootcamp or what to do in the job search. Have you noticed some reoccurring themes that people have questions about and do you mind sharing some of those? I think, and this is something I continue to deal with too, is like this imposter syndrome thing. Mm-hmm. It's like, I don't think I can do this. Like, here's all the reasons why I'm not qualified to do this. Like, this is why I wouldn't be able to get this job, right? And that's something that everybody has to go through. And it's something that might get better, but at least for me, it hasn't gone away. And so like the only way I've found to deal with imposter syndrome is to like, is action, right? Like you can't just sit there and worry about your shortcomings. I think like you were talking about a Navy SEAL like Jocko, right? Mm -hmm. I think the Navy SEALs like to talk about this a lot is where you take all your anxieties and your fears and you try to compartmentalize them. Detach. Yeah. And you just put them in the box and then you figure out if there's any actions you can take on it and you just take that action and forget about it. Yep. Instead of like worrying about it without being able to, because that's like what messes people up with imposter syndrome is. Analysis like, by paralysis. Yeah, or the like, other yeah. Way paralysis yeah. By thinking about things that you can't <laughs> exactly. do anything yeah. about. And, and then like to your point, both of your points, like, you know, once you detach, you could get yourself to the point and you start delivering, you get yourself to the point where you were when you were doing Hack Reactor Remote, where you had delivered so much, the imposter syndrome has gone away and people respect you and see you. It's not just like a software engineer. You're a software engineer that led 40 men that was like 
a beast in the battlefield that knew how to calculate and hit the unknowns. And so, yeah, it's, it's very interesting to me because like I always, I admire, you know, a lot of the things that you, you know, have learned and did before. And, and a lot of times I would say other people that are interviewing you, if they knew what the things were, which is what Archer was talking about, if they like that shift.org is doing about like explaining what like a platoon leader does and, you know, what you do when you're in ranger school and things like that. Like once they find out all that type of stuff, they're like, damn, like that's more than what I've done in my entire life. And so I think it's interesting on both sides. And, and there might be an element about like the way people tell their story to be put in a position to be able to demonstrate that they have the skills. I mean, a lot of times you don't always get that shot because a lot of times that story isn't. isn't yeah. And so far. to add to that, and you mentioned that kind of like once you started going through interviews, you realize kind of where the bar was, even though the bar was higher than where you were at that moment, you still kind of identified the, like the first step is to know where the bar is. And then the second step is kind of coming up with an action plan to get there. And I think a lot of people, when they discover where the bar is, I think that's when the imposter syndrome kicks in. So if you're experiencing the imposter syndrome, it's probably a good indicator that at least you know where the bar is. And inside, like initially, you're probably feeling, oh, I'm underqualified. But I recommend like taking action and like kind of getting yourself to that bar. So instead of kind of getting consumed with the bars over there and I'm so far away from it, instead, figure out a plan and like That's maybe it's going to take you. Yeah, it's a new target. Maybe it'll take you three weeks, maybe it'll take you three months. But knowing where the bar is is the most important thing because then you just have to find a way to get there. Yeah, I mean, it might be over the horizon. You just got to make the calculations to figure out how to get there. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and take into account that you can't control everything along the way. Boom, there it is. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's awesome, man. So at this point in the podcast, we do the lightning round. You probably know what the lightning round is because you're ready. You ready for this? <laughs> I think the listeners know what it is. So Arthur, take it away. Yeah. So we've uh, had a few variations of this question. So we used to ask people, if you could tweet at anyone in the world, what would you tweet? But since you work at Snapchat, if you could send a Snapchat to every single person in the world, what would it be? I only send snaps to my friends. <laughs> so if you had one snap to send to all your friends, that was like yeah, all your, your life lesson, what would it be? Yeah. Oh, I would like have like image of like somebody doing something like really cool, like jet skiing off uh-huh. a skyscraper into the ocean, uh-huh. but then like zoom out. And it's just like somebody on like TV or somebody watching it on TV eating pizza and being like, <laughs> hey, like <laughs> not everybody's lives are like as cool as they show them on social media. Sounds like you need to come on our next Breaking Starters trip so you can see how cool it is. <laughs> We're all about that action. Yeah. But, um, nice. Related to, you know, the fact that you're living in L.A. now, you know, we're in San Francisco right now, as Timor mentioned, and you flew out here. And we aren't just about Silicon Valley. Tech companies are everywhere. As you said, you spoke to 50 of them. What would you say are the reasons why you decided to live in LA versus San Francisco? The beach. Yeah. With water that you can swim in. Oh, so not cold. Venice sounds pretty nice. (laughs) Yeah. I actually moved there mostly so I could move in with my girlfriend. Oh. But but that being said, you should... If you're considering the Bay, you should probably also consider LA. Yeah, I mean, in, in partnership is important. So, yeah, got it. So the next question, it's around pivoting. We talked a little bit about pivoting in the pre-interview. You mentioned to us, and when we looked at your LinkedIn, we saw that after your undergrad, you actually applied to Harvard Business School and you did- Law a, school. Oh, yeah, Harvard Law School. And you did a year studying law, and then you decided to pivot and join the Army. Can you talk more about kind of the reasons why you decided to pivot? How hard was it for you to make that decision? So I guess I kind of ended up in law school, not by accident, but by kind of following the default choice. Mm-hmm. And so I'd never really thought about whether or not I wanted to be a lawyer until I was in my first year of law school. I really enjoyed the school and the learning from like kind of an abstract mm-hmm. level. But at that point, I realized I couldn't feel super passionate about being a lawyer. And that really scared me. And so. At that point, I decided I wanted to leave and then do something like very different from that, that was like challenging and that would kind of like itch that, like scratch that itch to like do something that was like completely all consuming. Yeah. Yeah. And we talk a lot about climbing the wrong hill. If you look at things like our logo or the name of our Instagram account, it's Everest 10X. And there's a lot of associations to mountains. 
And the reason climbing the wrong hill is important to us is that we were living in Atlanta back in 14 or 13, and we came across the blog post that highlighted this notion of in life, you're all, if you drop in the middle of the desert, you're gonna, if your goal is to find the highest hill, you can only see the highest hill based on your vantage point. And as you start climbing higher, you'll get more information, more data, you'll be able to see other hills around you. And as soon as you find another hill next to you, you're faced with a decision. Do you keep going up the hill you're set out to climb or do you go down and climb the highest hill? So it sounds like when you were doing law school, you were at some point you realized that, hey, there's something else that I wanted to pursue and you weren't afraid to actually go down that hill to climb another hill. And then after the army, you said, hey, I want to climb the engineering hill. So I think the takeaway here is that in life, there's going to be a lot of challenges. And as long as you're willing to take that risk and pivot and stick to it, you can find that success. I think the journey is what you should be going after, not necessarily that end goal. Yeah. If you could summarize, I fully agree with what you want to say. If you could summarize what you learn, like, so a lot of people don't appreciate what you've done. I appreciate what you've done, like from a, being a veteran and like what you learned in regular school and things like that. And I would love for you to be able to summarize like your top three lessons that you learned while you were in ranger school or as a platoon leader that you wanted maybe your men to learn. So teach me what I should learn so if, I, I, if I, I was reporting to you. So I can summarize like army, my four years of army experience and kind of like this like one lesson that I've learned is like nobody looks cool going through tough times, right? We oh. have this image of like heroes being like they go through all the shit, but like, you know, they their hair never gets messed up. <laughs> right. But like in reality, like I've seen people like on sleep deprivation and like hunger, like everybody's the same. Everybody like sucks. Right. Yeah. And, but the difference is like what you like choose to like do in that point. And it's not going to look cool. You're going to look like an idiot, like take putting one foot in from another, like you're really struggling. Yeah. But that's like where the greatest moments of learning and like growth are. I love that. Totally. No, yeah. So for the people that didn't catch that one more time, nobody looks cool during tough times. You're going to go through yeah. struggles. And I think that's actually relevant yeah. to breaking into startups as well because you're taking a huge financial risk. Not everyone has thousands of dollars saved up. And sometimes you have to sleep on people's couches. Sometimes you're homeless. Sometimes you're without a job. Or you might be um, a rock star in math in school and then you feel like a, yeah. a dummy yeah. like doing algorithm questions. But like, yeah. You, know, you break through and then yeah, you're like, wow, exactly. I figured it so out. We got to look at it as another challenge and realize that you're going to push through and just keep going because no one looks cool uh, yeah. in tough going times. Tough times. You might not even feel cool because you might be going to a job interview and they ask you a question and you're like, damn, like I should have read that chapter. And then you get rejection letters and then you start feeling down. But in reality, it's like, hey, as long as you keep leveling up and as long as you keep that target in mind, you're going to get there. I always try to look cool through tough times, though. Yeah. That's, that's Your hair I, never gets messed up. Yeah. 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 Hey, like so, if I trip, I try to do a flip and like land on my feet. You know? <laughs> yeah. So tell our listeners a little bit about what you do now at Snap. Like what's it been like now that you've broken into a startup, especially a startup school at Snap with millions of users. And then tell us a bit about your future plans. Yeah. So I work on, it's called Sponsored Creative Tools at Snap, which means geofilters. Dope. And so that's the app that both people and businesses can use to kind of pay to provide content for others and their friends inside Snapchat. Awesome. And so it's kind of a new concept. We're still playing around with it. But uh, next time you go on the site, geofilters.snapchat.com and you buy a filter that some of those things on the site are for me. When does breaking into startups get to test out some of those filters? We can try tonight. <laughs> All right. I like it. I like nice. it. So anybody that's here in the Soma area, just make sure you, you guys swipe right on Market Street and you'll be able to see the logo. Maybe when, <laughs> uh, maybe when John. John's episode comes out, yeah. we'll pick a location and then uh, we'll host a filter for that location so people can uh, share snaps and uh, enjoy his episode. Yeah, we'll, yeah. Tra- we'll take some of the video clips and drive traffic and see, you know, <laughs> see if we can yeah. get people to show up to that location. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and tell us what's next now that you've been uh, kind of at a startup. What's uh, next on the horizon for you? So for me, I want to... Not even in terms of jobs, but just more in terms of kind of life, life goals life. or like, I don't know. About to get goals. married, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> well, we'll see once things slow down. <laughs> uh, I think I want to continue learning. And then so 
I think I've been doing JavaScript for quite a while, both through Hack Reactor and now in my job for six months. I think now it's time to like try to move towards doing different things other than front end web. Cause there's a, like a whole world of programming that I haven't really kind of experienced yet that I'm excited. So like to. mobile, like iOS, Android. Or yeah. Like, nice. So check out CodePath because CodePath is another awesome program oh, yeah. and they just gave Breaking Startups a fellowship where you could attend the program for free and learn iOS or Android course hosted by some of the top tech companies. And it's eight weeks. You learn all the fundamentals. And at the end of the program, you're pretty much ready to build anything in Android or iOS. Yeah. Shout out to everybody who um, who applied for that. Can, yeah. How, like, can you yeah. give us some, some stats so on who? They were, was like, we had like one week or one weekend? So we had one weekend because unfortunately, we the deadline was coming up on August 14th. And we had over 600 people who checked out uh, the application and over 75 people submitted. And the average time was actually 35 minutes. So people put in some serious thought into it. Thank you all for putting yeah. your thought into this application. And uh, actually, the CodePath assignment is due August 24th. So hopefully there's a few folks who complete it and uh, get into the program. Good luck. Good luck, yeah, everybody. Yeah. Awesome. John, <laughs> so um, for our listeners, who do you want to get in touch with you? Because you have a super dope story. And if they're a veteran or they're part of our community, what's the best way for them to reach you? I like uh, long form. So I'm, I don't, not too active on Twitter, but on Medium at John Dang. If you comment on something or if you write a post, tag me. Nope. I'll be sure to respond. Nope. Very cool. Very yeah. cool. All right, man. Well, thanks for joining us. Uh, we look forward to catching up with your journey in the future. Yeah. Thanks, thanks a lot, guys. man. Thanks, dude. Peace. Thanks for checking us out. We appreciate you for listening and always love your feedback on how we can do better. If you enjoyed this, let us know what you thought on the reviews by going to iTunes, searching for Breaking Into Startups, subscribing to our podcast and leaving a review. Also, if you know someone who came from a non-traditional background and is looking to break into tech, encourage them to sign up to our newsletter or tell them to join the Breaking Into Startups community on Facebook. Remember, if they don't let you in through the front door, go through the back door, around it, under it, or through it. Let's break in.